Let us pray. Father God, we are, are grateful to be able to sing of the love of Christ, to sing of what He has done for us. And I pray that that motivates everything we do. And even now, looking to Your Word, the desire to know Your Word, the desire to apply Your Word to our hearts. And so, Father, we seek You in that and, and depend upon You for that. We pray that the Spirit would empower us and, and apply these things that we may live in response to all that You've done in Christ, that You'd be glorified in our lives. Father, remind us of the simplicity of the Gospel message. Uh, remind us of, of its, how straightforward it is for us. That we would see and understand and love you and honor you in, in all that is true about ourselves and what we deserve and all that's true about who Christ is and what he's done. So we thank you, Lord, for these things and ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As we continue here going through Romans, again, Paul is, is building up the case for this righteousness. Uh, this righteousness revealed in the gospel. And so uh, the very fact that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. This righteousness revealed in the gospel is from faith to faith. It's a, we begin as being declared righteous in faith. And we continue on being righteous through faith. At no, part, at no point does it become about our, our works. But it's from faith to faith. And so it's by faith that one is declared righteous, credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile or anything about anybody else, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We can only be saved from the wrath that we deserve due to our sin when we look to Jesus Christ by faith. This is what Paul has been pushing. This is what Paul has been declaring. This is what Paul has been making clearly known, that it's by grace through faith that we stand before God as righteous. And so, uh, as we've continued in Romans, and last week we looked at chapter 3, verses 27 to 31, and there it was very clear that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, and that it's grace alone, through faith alone. But even as we say that that's very clear, our Roman Catholic friends would tell us, no, it's, it's not by faith alone. Yes, you need faith, and yes, you need grace from God, but it's not those things alone. And they would say that the only place you find faith alone in the Scriptures is when you read James Chapter 2, verse 24. And they'll say, you have to look there and see that it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Hmm. That is what it says now, isn't it? Matter of fact, the, the Counter-Reformation Council, the Council of Trent, which was held in the mid-1500s, footnoted James, to support their anathema against anyone who would hold to justification by faith alone, as if nothing else is required. But I hope you can see, from everything that we have gone over in Romans so far, that Paul has been making it clear that it is by faith alone that one is justified. Apart from any works, 
I don't know how Paul could be any clearer here in Romans. I mean, just take the book of Romans on the whole. In chapter 3, verse 24, we read, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then if you jump into chapter 11, verse 6 says, if it is by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were by works, grace would not be grace. And we've read that we're justified apart from works, apart from anything about us, anything that we do. So, is Paul and James at odds with each other? Do they, do they contradict each other? Uh, some say they do. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, he wanted to throw the letter of James out of the canon, uh, out of Scripture. He said that it was an epistle of straw. But what have we said? What is it that, that we look to whenever someone tells us that there's contradictions in the Bible? Context, right? What drives meaning? Context. Context, 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 right? And so what do we have to do? We have to look to the context. We've been seeing the context as we've gone verse by verse through Romans, so we don't need to do that. But in James, we need to look at what James is saying, what he's getting at. And, and this is going to be a, a oversimplified explanation of the context of James, but I, I would challenge you yourself, go through and read through James chapter 2. Uh, read through the whole epistle of James to see what is he saying, what is the context. But again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to point to a few different things here. First, James chapter 2, verse 14. He says there, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? And so this is someone who's just professing faith. They say they have faith, but that's really as far as it goes. They're just claiming faith. And so, let's just, for example, say someone just burst through those doors yelling and screaming that there's a fire in the kitchen. You know, we, don't, we don't hear the smoke alarms going off. We, we don't see or smell the smoke. We don't see or feel the flames. But they come in with such panic and, and urgency on their face saying, there's a fire, get out, get out. And, and we say, oh, okay, there, we, we believe you. We, we trust that you are correct in saying there's a fire. We, we, we have faith in, in what you're saying. And then we go back to what we're doing. We don't move, we don't change, nothing. We just continue on. And they say, why don't you believe me? There's a fire in the kitchen. And we say, no, we do believe you. We, we have faith in you. We believe. No, you don't believe. And why? Why would they not trust, believe that we believe them? Because if we really did believe, it would cause a change in us. There'd be a work in us. We wouldn't just continue here doing what we're doing. We'd get up. Someone would call 911. We'd be going out the exits if we really believed them. But instead, all we're doing is professing to believe them. We say we have faith in what they're saying. That's what James is getting at. And so again, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then again, I encourage you to just read this on your own, but I'm going to skip down to verse 18, where James says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So again, uh, this is the idea of faith being seen in our lives by what we do. So this is the idea of someone else being able to see that I have faith. 
between me and someone else. And again, that's very different than what Paul is getting at. Paul is not talking about faith being seen between person to person, but faith and being justified between this person and God. All right, so what Paul is talking about and what James is talking about in each of their contexts is different. It's not the same thing. James is writing to those who miss the point that genuine saving faith will produce, it will result in works. Where, for many, saving faith, again, was just a profession with no fruit being born in their lives to demonstrate that faith. And even as James references Abraham, as we're going to see in our text this morning, uh, Paul does the same thing. He refers to Abraham. But even still, again, they're not talking about the same thing. And so we look at James chapter 2, verse 21. And James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then James will reference the same verse that Paul does in our passage this morning in Romans. We see there in verse 23, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you remember our study last summer of looking at Genesis and and Abraham's life, you remember the order of those things. It was in chapter 22 that we saw Abraham offer Isaac on the altar. But it was in chapter 15 that we read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Abraham was justified before God by his faith years before he ever offered Isaac on the altar. Years before uh, Isaac was even born. Uh, Sarah wasn't even pregnant yet. And so he was already justified in God's sight. But it was when he offered Isaac on the altar that that faith that was first professed was put into action and so could be seen. That it was demonstrated. So again, that's what James is getting at. A faith that is demonstrated that others can see it. But Paul is talking about one standing before God through faith. How is one justified in God's sight? It is by faith, and faith alone. So again, context matters. And so, as we see here, Paul is continuing arguing for faith alone. And what he does as we come to chapter 4 is he now begins to support everything that he has said so far, specifically everything we read last week in chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. And so again, one is justified through faith, and it's through faith alone. And if we are justified through faith alone, then no one has any room for boasting in themselves. It's exactly what we see here. And so he supports these things as we come to chapter 4. And so let's read together chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, as Paul has demonstrated that our our justification is by faith alone, and being by faith alone, there's no room to boast, he now supports that. And I would argue in, in supporting that notion the way he does, he's also showing that this is the way God has always done it. Someone has always been justified through faith, apart from works. That's always been the case. And so in, in supporting his premise and, and in showing that this has always been the case, Paul turns his attention to Abraham. And that's not insignificant. And this is specifically to Abraham that he turns because, one, we see Abraham was justified by faith. But also, too, Abraham is the one whom God used, whom God chose to begin to start the Jewish nation. And so Paul refers to Abraham here, as we read in the English Standard Version, it says, Abraham, our father, you could say our forefather, according to the flesh. Now, there, there's some debate in how the Greek should be translated here. Um, how, according to the flesh, how that's used in the sentence, is it attached to our father? Our father according to the flesh? And therefore, it would seem that Paul then is addressing that imaginary Jewish opponent? Or, does according to the flesh get attached to what was gained or found by Abraham? That whatever was gained by Abraham, he gained it according to the flesh. He gained it in his own efforts, in his own, his own working. Well, I think, and, and most agree, that the English Standard Version has it right here. That it is Abraham, our father, according to the flesh. And so, again, Paul would be addressing that imaginary Jewish opponent, saying, listen, our father, we're both Jewish, we're both physical descendants of Abraham, our father according to the flesh. That's who we're talking about here. What did he gain? Now, too, as I say this, it's likely also that Paul was addressing this imaginary opponent in what we read last week, too, with those questions that Paul brought up. But again, Abraham is the one through whom God started the Jewish nation, as we went over last summer. He is the one who is the example of being justified before God. And so it's important that Paul points to him. Uh, Jewish rabbis in Paul's day held Abraham up as the exemplary Jew. And the primary argument that one is justified by, well, works, actually. Uh, That was the teaching. Abraham shows that one is justified by works. That's what the rabbis would say. Uh, Jewish writings outside of Scripture show that this was the popular teaching among the Jews. That Abraham was justified before God by his obedience. Or if you read in First and Second Maccabees, it was by his faithfulness. But what have we seen as we've studied through Romans? We've seen that a sinner cannot be saved 
by his obedience. A sinner cannot be justified by his works. Because what works of righteousness does a sinner have? None. We've said even one's good deeds are tainted with their sin. And and we look to Old Testament passages to support that. And we saw throughout our study of Abraham over the summer that Abraham was indeed a sinner. When God called him, he was an idolater. He worshipped the moon god. And we saw a recurring sin in his life of lying, right? And a specific lie that he kept going back to. And we saw he was an adulterer when he tried to fulfill God's plan in his own means. So, for Paul then, to point to Abraham to defend the notion that one is justified by faith alone is a significant thing. I thought it was really helpful what John MacArthur said on this. MacArthur said, By using Abraham as a supreme scriptural example of justification or salvation by faith alone, Paul was storming the very citadel of traditional Judaism. By demonstrating that Abraham was not justified by works, the apostle demolishes the foundations of rabbinical teaching. That man is made right with God by keeping the law, that is, on the basis of his own religious efforts and works. If Abraham was not and could not have been justified by keeping the law, then no one could be. Conversely, if Abraham was justified solely on the basis of faith in God, then everyone else must be justified in the same way, since Abraham is the biblical standard of a righteous man. So Paul can show that Abraham was justified not by what he did, but by his faith, then game over. It's done. Everyone, then, is justified not by what they do, but by faith. And so, referring to Abraham, Paul seeks to demonstrate through the Scriptures that that indeed is the case. And so, He does. He successfully shows that Abraham is justified before God by faith. And therefore, that's the only way to be justified before God and the way that God has always done it. It has always been apart from works. And so as we see this develop, we keep going here and we see in verse 2 that that verse begins with the word for. So Paul is clarifying his rhetorical question that he says there in verse 1. What was it that Abraham found? What, what, what was gained by him? And what he found was justification. And again, was it by works? Well, no, and that's the point. So Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If Abraham found justification by his works, he would have reason to point to himself and say, look what I did. Look how good I am. And we talked about that last week. Now, a few others point out, and I think rightly so, that when Paul says here that Abraham would have something to boast about, but not before God, they're not implying that then Abraham would have something to boast about before people. Uh, That's not the point. Uh, The point is one standing before God. Uh, That's what Paul is getting at. And so before God, he cannot boast. Paul is showing that the premise that Abraham is justified by works is false. 
because Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. So works could not be the means of justification. And then we come to verse 3, and we see Paul supporting this with Scripture. As it says, therefore, what does the Scripture say? And Paul can do this, because what Paul taught is exactly in line with what the Old Testament taught. Paul's not teaching something new. Just as Paul is in line with James. There's no contradiction anywhere in God's word. There's no contradiction in the New Testament. There's no contradiction in the Old Testament, nor is there any contradiction between the New and Old Testament. It is all God's inspired word. And in both the Old and the New Testament, salvation is the same. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And as we saw in chapter 3, verse 21, the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness, this righteousness that, again, is by faith. The Old Testament pointed ahead to the one that would come, that would be the sinner's righteousness, the one, again, who is Yahweh Sekinu, Yahweh, our righteousness. And in the Old Testament, they looked ahead to his coming by faith. Just as we in the church look back on his coming by faith. We look back on all he is and all that he has done. That he has accomplished the work of salvation for us. Now, according to Galatians and the Gospel of John, God revealed the Gospel to Abraham. And Abraham looked forward to Christ's coming. The Gospel has never changed There has only ever been one way to be saved. And it's always been the same. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And therefore, it's always been to the glory of God alone, on the authority of Scripture alone. And so now Paul goes all the way back to Genesis to show Abraham was justified before God by faith. And there in Genesis 15, God was showing Abraham that he was going to keep his promises, that his covenant with Abraham was as good as his word. And so we read then, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the word here for counted, it means to reckon. It carries the idea of being calculated. It can be understood as to charge to or to count, to keep a mental record, to charge, to credit to someone's account. And on this word, Colin Cruz in his commentary says, the verb to credit is a bookkeeping term that can be applied metaphorically to human beings. By crediting Abraham's faith as righteousness, God was accepting him as one now fit for relationship with him and choosing to take no account of his sin. So when Abraham believed God, God credited Abraham's account with righteousness, as opposed to crediting his account with Abraham's own sin. And again, it was a common understanding that Abraham was justified by his faithfulness. So his faith was a righteous act But that clearly cannot be the case. Even as you look to Genesis 15, that does not fit the context. 
No, Abraham believed God when he made his promise to give him a descendant. Even though, as Abraham was standing there, he had no kids, he had never had kids, his wife Sarah had always been barren, and yet when God said he would have a descendant, he believed God. When God said that he had descendants as numerable, uh, as uncountable as the stars in heaven, he believed God. And that among those descendants would be the Christ. Abraham believed God would do what he said he would do. There's nothing that Abraham did, he just believed. And God counted it as righteousness. And this helps us to understand that this righteousness is not from anything within the one who is justified. It's not anything inherent to the one that's justified. No, it's, as Luther said, an alien righteousness. It comes from outside the one who is justified. It is the righteousness that is from God, as revealed in the gospel. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, what Christ has accomplished for the one justified. And that's always been the case. It's always been that righteousness. And so it's always been through faith as a gift of God's grace. And so again, if Abraham had been justified by his works, he would have had something to boast about. Abraham could be sitting in heaven right now saying, look how good I am. Look how good I was as I lived down there, that I'm here now. I'm great. You know, look, what an amazing person I must be, that God would, would make me to be with him now. I must have been pretty good. But I assure you, that is not what Abraham is saying. No, the only thing Abraham could be saying is, look at my God. Look how great he is. It's because of how good and righteous and glorious he is that I'm here. It's because of his amazing grace that I can be with him forever. Look how good God is. Again, Abraham has no reason to boast in himself before God, but instead there's every reason to boast in God. How great he is. Because it's nothing that Abraham did. Abraham believed God. And so God credited it to him as righteousness. And again, it's the same for everyone else. If you worked for it, you earned it, so therefore you can boast about it. It's what you did. But you didn't earn it. And that's Paul's point as you look at verse 4. There Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So like one goes to work to earn a paycheck. The self-righteous person wants to work to hope that his good deeds will outweigh his bad. The self-righteous person wants to say, no, I'm a good person. Of course I'm going to go to heaven. Look how good I am. Look at all the good things I do. And so such a one is trying to earn their salvation. They're working for it. And that's the common notion, is it not? If you're out there sharing the gospel with people around you, you know that... 99.9% of the time, they're going to talk about their own goodness, of why they think they're going to go to heaven when they die. Or at least they hope. Right? There, there's, there's no real assurance because we really know the truth. right? We, we want to suppress it, but, but everyone knows. I don't, I don't really measure up. 
But they're hoping they'll go to heaven based on their own goodness. They're trying to work for it. That, that's the common notion. But then salvation would not be a gift of God's grace. You know, my, uh, my mother's birthday is coming up. Matter of fact, it's, it's actually next Sunday. Um, I'm not going to tell you how old she is because I, I am planning to live to actually see her birthday next Sunday. So, but, but, but let's just say, you know, I get her a gift. And the next Sunday I go to present her with this gift. I said, you know, before you take it, you, you actually got to do a few things first. Uh, I need you to, to come to my house. You got to watch the kids. You got to do some cleaning. You got to do some yard work. Um, you got to cook while you're there. And, and there's a few other things I need done. And, uh, you know, once you've done enough work, then you can have the gift. Now, if we just kind of set aside the, the plethora of reasons why that would be an insult to my mother, uh, let's just ignore that for right now. Uh, she would say, and rightfully so, but then that's not a gift. That, that's payment. And again, she'd be right. And so, too, if you have to do something to be right before God, to be saved, to be right with him, then it's not a gift of his grace. It's what you've earned. It's your wages. So justification must be a part of any kind and any amount of works. Because to the degree that you work for it, then that's the degree that you can boast in it. The degree to which you've earned it but we don't earn anything. If it's by works, it is not by grace. And then verse 5 says, and to the one who does not work, but believes. Now there is a contrast there between verse 4 and 5, and so it may be better to, to read it as, but to the one who does not work, but believes. And who is this one that doesn't work? And, and who does he believe in? Well, he believes in him who justifies the ungodly. This is the one whose faith is counted, is credited to his account as righteousness. So again, you must have faith. You must take God at his word that he has done it all for you, that, that Christ has accomplished this work. Now, someone who wants to hold on to their sin... Instead of trusting in Christ for salvation, they may say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just too bad. I, I have done so many things you don't even know. You don't even want to know. There, there's no way that I can be forgiven. Now, we, we've mentioned that there's, there's a pastor who calls that inverted self-righteousness. Right? And that is exactly what it is. You know, it's not that you're saying that I'm so good that I don't need to be forgiven. You're saying that you're so bad that you can't be forgiven. Uh, you claim to think somehow that you are a greater sinner than Christ is a great Savior, which is just ridiculous. But again, it's an excuse to hold on to their sin, to not believe. But it's a lousy excuse. Because what are you saying? You're saying that you're ungodly. Well, guess what? That's exactly the kind of person God justifies. The ungodly, the wicked, the irreverent, the wretched sinner. That's the only kind of person God can justify because that's the only kind of person there is to justify. We're all ungodly, wretched sinners. We all can look to the law, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 20. And looking to the law, there's not one of us that would see works of ours in keeping the law by which we would be justified. But instead, looking to the law, 
we get the knowledge of sin, of our sin. And so we see that we are wretched sinners. As God's holy standard is on display, we see that we don't come close to measuring up. We fall infinitely short, each and every one of us. We are all ungodly. But praise God, he justifies the ungodly. But on the other side of the coin, you must also admit that you're ungodly. You must be willing to recognize it or else you'll never put your faith in him and trust in him to justify you. That you must see your need and take God at his word that he will justify you because Christ has done all that is needed to justify you. Otherwise, if you continue to see yourself as godly, as a good person, then you're never going to trust in him. You're going to keep working for it to earn it. And really then what you're doing is believing in you, as opposed to believing in the one who justifies the ungodly. And therefore, you'll never be justified. You'll never know the grace of God. You'll only know his wrath for all eternity. Trust in him who justifies the ungodly. And so again, Paul has made his argument, and he's supported this argument with this witness from the Old Testament, Abraham, as the prime example of one who is justified by faith alone. And therefore, being justified by faith alone, there's no room for boasting. But then as we keep going here, Paul looks to another Old Testament man to testify to this fact that we are justified by faith alone, and that's David in the Psalms. As we see here in verse 6, David refers to a blessed man. And I think it's important that we ask, who is this blessed man? Well, this quote here in Romans 4, verses 7 through 8, is a quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And so specifically in that psalm, the blessed man is David himself. But also, too, David words it there that anyone who fits the conditions would be known as a blessed man. And so Paul, he applies this to all who have faith. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is that blessed man. And you and I are so blessed who believe, having received such unspeakable and unmeasurable grace from God to save us. Now, some argue that Psalm 32 is one of the two psalms, along with Psalm 51, that David wrote in repentance after his affair with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah. And that could be the case. The only problem with that is, is the fact that Psalm 32 doesn't actually tell us what the occasion was under which Paul or David wrote it. It could have been that incident, or it could have been any plethora of sins by David. Uh, that, that's in reference there. But since David didn't actually tell the occasion, he probably intended that the reader or the singer of the psalm would be able to broadly apply it to their own lives. At the same time, though, what David says in this psalm about keeping quiet about his sin and then finally acknowledging his sin, that, that does fit uh, what happened there after he sinned with Bathsheba and set it up for Uriah to be killed in battle. But, in any case, what does David say here about the blessed man? 
Who is this one who is blessed, whom God counts righteousness apart from works? Well, we read here, as Paul quotes this psalm in verses 7 through 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David had no righteous works by which he could stand before God. David was a sinner. David was, again, an adulterer, a murderer, a plethora of other things. How could his good works outweigh his bad? There's no chance for that. But what about this blessed man that makes him blessed? He has lawless deeds, or you could say uh, transgressions or, or violations of God's holy standard. So how is he blessed? What, what about those transgressions? What about those lawless deeds? David says they're forgiven. Or, or literally, it says that they are sent away. They, they are legally removed. And then he says that they're covered. They're covered, that they will never be brought up against the blessed man ever again. And then read verse 8. Read it again. It's, it's worth reading again. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Isn't that a blessing? I mean, think of your sin. All I have to do is think of mine and all the plethora of things that I have done. And to think that none of that would be counted to me? Should be. But yeah, that, that is being blessed. But how can that be? How can God do that? How can God do any of this? How can he forgive? How can he not count or not impute a person's sin to them? How? If he's going to be a just God, doesn't he need to see that justice gets served? So how can he let the sinner go? Because of everything that we read back in chapter 3, right? Specifically chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And remember, uh, we said propitiation is is the idea of of the, the satisfaction of his justice whom God put forward as a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had passed over David's sins. He passed over Abraham's sins and Moses' sins and and on and on you can go. He forgave. He covered their sins because he was going to send Christ as a satisfaction for their sin. Going to send Christ to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God could forgive. God could cover David's sin. God could not count David's sin against David because he knew he was going to send Christ and count that sin against Christ. He could let the justice not be fulfilled against David because he had every intention to fulfill that justice against Christ in David's place. Christ was credited with David's sin. Christ was credited 
with David's adultery, with his murder, with his pride, with his everything else that David had ever done. God credited to Christ, and Christ paid for it as he hung on Calvary's cross. This is how God could forgive the sinner. That God's justice would be satisfied. His wrath would be quenched in Christ so David could be forgiven. So David could be acquitted. So David could be justified. Not because of David, but because God blessed David with unmeasurable grace. The only thing that David had earned before God was wrath. But Jesus paid that wrath for him. So David's sin would be removed and never be brought up against David again. That way David could know righteousness would fill his account. Righteousness that was not his own. See, brothers and sisters, again, we're going to celebrate communion here. And it is a celebration. We have to understand that. Yes, a somber worship and reverence for sure, but it is a celebration. And we praise our God for all the wondrous things that he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And we see this in our text. In in verses 1 through 5, we see what's credited to us who believe, who have faith. And what's credited to us is righteousness. It's not our own. We have none. But Jesus was righteous for us. This righteousness from God and given as a free gift of his grace. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see that we see the thing that's not credited to us. And what's not credited to us is our sin. But again, it's, it's only not credited to us because it was credited to Jesus in our place while he was on the cross. Uh, This is what's called double imputation. On the cross, Christ was imputed. He was credited with my guilt. And there, as though he was me, the guilty sinner, he suffered the wrath of God that I deserve, and he paid for that sin in full, so that then, through faith, I would be imputed with Christ's righteousness. And being imputed with Christ's righteousness, I am then welcomed by God. Loved by God like a father loves his son. And given an eternal place with him in glory. Jesus earned it, but it's mine through faith. What a gift of God's grace. This, brothers and sisters, is what we celebrate in celebrating communion. This is why it should be a joyous celebration as we remember Christ, as we remember he gave of his body and shed his blood, as he paid for our sin in our place. What a joyous thing that we celebrate. We are indeed blessed, blessed beyond measure, as we are credited through faith with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And crediting sinners by faith with righteousness is what God has always done. And so if you are not trusting in Christ, if you are not believing alone in Jesus to save you, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in him and your sin will be wiped away. 
past, present, and future, all of it, gone and done with in Christ. And you will stand in His righteousness. You will be seen by God as if you lived Christ's life. And He will receive you as His son or daughter. And He will set His love on you, and you will know this love, and you'll know your place with God for all eternity. Trust upon Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. What, what amazing grace. What amazing love. What generosity that you have shown to us to take us who are spiritually bankrupt and fill our account with the righteousness of Christ. To take our debt and our sin and pay it in full in Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. And we ask now as we continue to celebrate and honor you in communion that that you would be glorified and your gospel would be proclaimed and, and we would go out from here ready to proclaim this truth and let others know that we may glorify you, our great and awesome God, who has so saved us. We thank you. Amen.